Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Elchidiak, your temporary host. Alex is away on break for the month, so I'll be filling in while he's away. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Squire. Sarah is Director of Communications and Senior Fellow at Liberty Fund and the author of the college writing textbook, Writing with a Thesis. She has published academic articles on topics as diverse as Shakespeare and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and her writing has appeared in such diverse journals as Literature and Medicine, the George Herbert Journal, and the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization. Now, Sarah is not only a very accomplished person, she's also had a lot of influence over my own ideas as a classical liberal, so I'm so excited to welcome her as my first guest today. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, it's really good to be here, Sabine. Thanks for being here with me. And our question today is, can literature influence liberalism? Um, to explore this, it's probably best to start with defining what we mean by certain terms and concepts, I would say. And it might seem a bit strange to some people, but I would like you to define literature. What do you mean by literature before we get started? What's included in that? Can we include pop culture writing or is it just like the Penguin classics? What are you talking about? So I think it's actually a great question um, as to what we define as literature. And I, I would, for my for my work and for the things that, that most interest me, I would define literature as broadly as popular, possible. Um, I think you can slice it any number of ways. But if if we're talking about this larger question of can uh, can literature influence uh, liberty inter- influence uh, liberalism, I think you have to include not just the Penguin classics and not just the expanded literary written canon. I think you have to include film. I think you have to include television. I would go so far as to saying uh, meme culture. Um, uh, you know, RPGs uh, and, and tabletops, just about anything. Um, the, the cultural artifacts that we use to carry ideas, uh, to convey ideas between each other, I think would be kind of the, the broadest possible definition that I want to use. Okay, so it isn't necessarily just the things that have the superior or lasting merit, as a dictionary sometimes defines it, but it's just a way of conveying ideas to each other. The yeah, well, because the problem with the dictionary definition then is you can only define literature in retrospect, right? Mm-hmm. You can't if if the definition of literature is something that has a superior and lasting effect, you never know what literature is when you're experiencing it in the moment, because nobody going to Shakespeare's plays when they were being produced looked around and said this is the height of English literature. There was like, this is a really badass play. Can I, can I say yes, badass you on can. Yes, podcast? Absolutely. I wasn't sure. I had a minute. <laughs> um, um, that it's so, so you can say that in retrospect, we can look back now and say Shakespeare's plays are great works of literature because they do have superior and lasting merit, right? But we have to be able to talk about the literature that is being produced every day around us especially if we want to talk about the impact that those kinds of uh, experiences, those kinds of expressions can have on our understanding of uh, what it means to be free people. Okay. And uh, as also before we get started on everything else and answering the question, I'd love to hear from you about your background in literature and in liberalism. And the fact that I, I heard you say in one of your interviews in the past that uh, your pathway to liberalism was through literature, which is not very common. And I'd, I'd love to hear about that. How did that happen? Um, people don't often make their way to liberalism through literature. Why is that? But before we get into that, I'd like to hear your story, if, if you're comfortable sharing that. Oh, I mean, how far back do we want? <laughs> yes. Back in the mists of time. Um, <laughs> so my undergraduate uh, degree and my graduate degrees are all in English literature. Um, I specialized at the time in Renaissance and Reformation English literature. That's still a a huge interest of mine. Um, That literature, uh, Milton, uh, Hobbes, Shakespeare, uh, Dunn, Herbert, um, is, is filled with questions about liberty and questions about free thought. That was a, 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 pressing preoccupation for the Renaissance and the Reformation, right? It was about a a freedom from what they saw as the constraints of the Middle Ages and the 
the uh, constraints of the um, the Catholic Church at the time, right? The Reformation came in, and uh, you know Luther writes the enormously uh, influential uh, essay called "The Freedom of Christian," right, which is about being freed from the laws, being being freed from the 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 kinds of practices instituted by the Catholic Church, and free to sort of interact independently with the text of scripture on one's own. And all of these things mean that while I was doing the kind of work that I was doing uh, in traditional literary scholarship, I was also steeped in arguments about freedom, about liberty, about free thought, right? Um, Freedom of the press was a hugely contested uh, issue in the period. Uh, uh, You know, toleration, free religious expression, uh, free political expression, all enormously uh, contested in the period and enormously important in the literature of the time. And so I just kind of soaked it all in from that. Um, uh, But it was really, it was when I read um, Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative, where I sort of went, oh, there's this thing, right? There's like this whole other thing that I could be. Until then I had assumed that I basically had no no politics other than really, really strong feelings about the execution of Charles I, who was railroaded. Um, <laughs> I, so I just assumed that I didn't really have a, a modern political sensibility because I didn't feel like I had a modern political home. When I read Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative, uh, my reaction was, oh, there's there's this other thing and there's at least this one guy who thinks like I do, right? And so that was... Uh, you know, a, a, I wouldn't say an awakening, but like a, you know, a little bit of a light switch uh, flipped for me when I read that piece by Hayek. So everybody should read that. I agree. <laughs> I, I love it too. Um, and as I was saying before, people don't often make their way to liberalism through literature. Um, why do you see that as, is that a problem? If so, why do you see that as a problem? Um, yeah, I'd like to hear your opinion on that. I mean, I think, I think I would, state the problem in a different way, Um, which is, so I'm not really, I'm not on a mission to convert people. I'm not, you know, there are people who think of themselves as uh, liberty evangelists, right? And they just want to get more and more people on the team. And that is a, a great and a noble thing to be doing. I don't particularly think of myself as doing that so much as I think of myself as talking to people who are interested in liberty and saying, hey, there's actually just an absolute boatload of great stuff in literature, whether it's great works by Shakespeare and Milton and Dickens and all sorts of other folks, whether it's like the really the big heavy hitters or whether it's in romance novels, which I wrote about for Reason Magazine a couple of years ago, or whether it's in science fiction, which I write about all the time. Um, there, there are themes in those works that are incredibly important to people who are interested in the classical liberal project, right? And we, when we don't pay attention to those arguments and to those literary sources for those arguments, we lose some of the best advocates that we could have on our side, right? We, we look, if you can have Shakespeare batting on your team, you want Shakespeare batting on your team, right? Would, yeah. You can have Orwell <laughs> on your side. You want Orwell on your side, right? So uh, when, when we uh, don't attend to that, uh, we really, we really make a, a fatal error, I think. Yeah. And that, I'm really glad you brought that up because my next question for you uh, was going to be sort of the common idea is that literature is essentially Marxist at worst and anti-liberal at best. That's the common idea. Um, I wanted to ask you like, <laughs> how accurate is that? And you, you mentioned Orwell, you know, a lot of uh, people uh, who think of themselves as classical liberals uh, might sort of not get too excited about Orwell as much as one would think they would because of his political leanings and all of that. And I'm wondering what you think about that. You know, how accurate is that interpretation? Um, and what should we be looking at, perhaps? 
Oh, you just asked me to summarize the last 20 years of my career. <laughs> uh, I, I, mean, th- this, I just think it's so probably, interesting. I want to hear about right, it. <laughs> so if there's, if there's a thing that I do, this is the thing that I do is just to jump up and down and say, you know, y'all are doing it wrong. Um, which is to say, there's tons of Marxist stuff in literature. Absolutely, without a doubt. But there's also tons of uh, liberty loving, of uh, entrepreneurship supporting, of uh, freedom loving, of individualistic and individualist ethic uh, material in literature. And it, it drives me crazy when the entire sweep of literary production is simply ignored and dismissed as sort of opposed to the things that we care about, right? Because then we're ignoring people like uh, Neville Shute, who's a much neglected, incredibly important uh, mid 20th century writer who is uh, very interested in markets, very interested in gains from trade in particular, wrote, uh, wrote one of the books that I think is most interesting on both uh, on on economics as a force for real liberty and real freedom. And that's a a novel called The Town Like Alice, which is the second thing I'm going to tell everybody that they should read. (laughs) Beautiful book. So we ignore stuff like that. We we focus on uh, the fact that Shakespeare wrote Merchant of Venice, which is, as we all know, not a big fan of merchants and of trade. Um, I have no argument there. Um, but he also wrote a bunch of sonnets um, that take uh, profits um, and uh, and monetary interest as a metaphor for um, having children, right? Which is, you know, in Protestant love poetry is an incredibly positive thing, right? So he uses he uses profit as a way of talking about the production of a marriage, right? Which is children, which is a very positive image of trade and a very positive image of of, uh, profit and of money-making, right? And so, you know, my response to people who say that sort of thing about literature is they just haven't read enough stuff, right? You can't just read Merchant of Venice and stop there, right? You can't just read Dickens's Christmas Carol and stop there. Dickens wrote a couple other novels, um, you know, his complete works take up an entire shelf on my bookcase, right? Um, you have to read all of the things if you really want to know what you're talking about. Um, uh, so it isn't just one small part. It's just the one small part of the broader work, the works that are always uh, repeated and talked about when people are talking about them and, and what their supposed political leanings are or their supposed outlook on e- on economics and on society is so what what do you think their broader project was is it was it to bring forth the sort of idea that they wanted to bring forth or was it were they just interpreting life as it was in their era i'm sorry who's your they there are you talking uh, now about people like shakespeare and dickens you brought them up so because they have different ideas (laughs) in different books or they're they're presenting Mm -hmm. different ideas in different books what do you think their broader project might be then I mean, I think that that varies from obviously varies from author to author, varies from project to project, varies from probably one part of a project to another part of a project. I I don't think. I don't think that people. Tend to write long form fiction like a novel or like a play if they have a simple and easily stated answer to a question or view of a complicated topic. I mean, people do that and then it produces not terribly interesting Mm -hmm. novels or plays, right? Um, I think great works um, that are are interested in big questions, great works that are interested in complicated topics are great because the person producing them is able to imaginatively enter all kinds of different points of view about that question and about that problem, which isn't to say that a work uh, is is necessarily neutral on a topic, but it, it is to say that even if the author has a view, um, 
And of course, the author is going to have a view. The view of the author might not be the view of the play, right? And uh, and I like to think and would be willing to to argue for probably a considerable amount of time that that the greatest literature um, raises as many questions as it answers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that, for example, when you read Shakespeare's Henry V, right, um, we know because we have the film productions, you can do a great production of Henry V that presents the, the, uh, the play as being very pro-war. Olivier does this with, with his film of Henry V. You can also do an equally great production of the play that is anti-war, or at least questions, raises a lot of questions about the nobility of war. Uh, And we know that because Kenneth Branagh does it in his uh, film version of Henry V. Same play, exactly the same play. What you bring to it and what your cultural context brings to it changes your understanding of it and changes what the work might mean for liberty in, in your particular context. That's true. And uh, I hadn't really thought about it before I, I was reading up for this episode uh, based on the things you, you, you wrote and said about uh, this topic, that it's outside of just the economic scope. So um, I came across you speaking about uh, a play, a collaborative play called Thomas More, which I didn't know <laughs> Shakespeare was a part of. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and he actually advocates for immigration in a way in that, and I, I had no idea. And I'm somebody who's really interested in immigration and I didn't know this. And um, if, if you'll let me, I just want to read one small part of that, um, that something that he presumably wrote that um, I picked up from something that you wrote. Uh, and Shakespeare says, well, why you must, needs by be strangers would you be pleased to find a nation of such barbarous temper that breaking out in hideous violence would not afford you an abode on earth i mean that really um hit home for me i i thought that was a beautiful uh line uh there's a lot more i didn't want to read all of it even though i really wanted to i can't <laughs> but yeah it's it's a great speech and it's about right if you look at that speech he's talking to people who are protesting immigration into the country. And he's saying to them, look, you have to imaginatively enter the mind of the immigrant. You have to say to yourself, what would happen if I were in their shoes, if I had to go to a country and I was greeted by people who are behaving the way that I am behaving now, right? So what's fun about that in in the context of the conversation we're having at this very, very moment, right, is that that's absolutely a moment when a play is doing exactly what, what we were just talking about, right? Yes. We have... We have Shakespeare understanding the people who are protesting against immigration and his character, Sir Thomas More, saying, I understand what you're thinking, but let me also ask you to understand this other point of view. Right. That's really, Um, that's really interesting. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just. (laughs) No, no, no. And I I mean, I just, it was, it's lovely that you picked that, that particular bit to talk about because that's exactly, exactly the kind of thing that I find so interesting. Uh, so talking about, we were just mentioning things that hit home still today. Uh, we're still having the immigration argument. We're still having all of these arguments. We can look back at the past literature, at literature of the past to find answers or just interpretations. Uh, but you said at one point that you don't like to just rate literature only in terms of what it can teach us about our present time. Um, that it should do more than, like you think it should do more than that. I think if I'm, if I'm interpreting your opinion correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong. I just want to know if, is that a correct interpretation of what you think and why is that? Uh, it's, I mean, literature can do all kinds of different things. One of the things that it can do is talk to us about the present moment in which we live. One of the things it can do is help us to imaginatively imaginatively enter the past. Uh, Another thing that it can do is help us to speculate about the future and what that might be like. Um, And in each of those iterations of what a literary work can do or might do, um, one of the things it is doing is showing us the ways in which humans are human across time. 
right? We like to, everybody likes to quote, and I'm as guilty as everybody else. Um, everybody likes to quote the line about the past is another country. They do things differently there. That's absolutely true. I was just writing a piece today for the, the reading room blog at the Online Library of Liberty um, that, I, that I work on for Liberty Fund. So I was just writing a piece today about people going to public edu- ex- public executions in the 18th century right and 17th century and and quoting Samuel Pepys the diarist he's like well I got up this morning and I went to go see a guy get hanged drawn in quarters and then I went out for oysters for lunch with my friends right and it's this incredible moment you're like oh wow (laughs) this might as well be a completely different planet from the one that I am living on Um, And so you have those moments when you encounter the past, but you also have these moments where people who are so, so distant from us in terms of place and in terms of time are suddenly so intimately close to us. And so their, their experience just hits us right where we live, right? And is so familiar to us. And it's that it's that human connection across time and across place um, that that is is such a content constant and is such an important part of what literature does for us as human beings. Um, so talking about this makes me think of an author that classical liberals love to talk about, and uh, many people love to misinterpret, and that's Adam Smith. <laughs> So I knew he'd come up. I'm I'm contractually compelled to mention Liberty Fund's website, adamsmithworks.org as well. Well, I love it. Uh, which is a favorite site of mine. Gotta gotta put in a plug for the home team there. I also um, love that website. It's really awesome. <laughs> I encourage everybody to so. go check it out. <laughs> but you know, Smith is is famous for having people just reading one of his two bo- like major works and then yes. deriving everything that they think they know about Smith from that. Um, right. Is that a, a good example of what you're talking about? What we've been talking about for the past like half an hour? <laughs> oh yeah. You mean sort of the, uh, the kind of cherry picking yeah. sort, sort of approach. It is, um, you know, um, and, and I would argue actually that, that you need to read uh, Smith's unpublished stuff as well. The, you know, the essays on philosophical subjects and, and lectures on the rhetoric and, and jurisprudence and so on. But that, that might be for people who are, you know, serious addicts. Um, I think, and I think, you know, I think one of the weird things that comes out of people reading one or the other of Smith's two books, kind of basing their interest. So they're either reading Wealth of Nations and basing their interpretations on that, or they're reading Theory of Moral Sentiments and they're basing their interpretations of that. One of the weird things that came out of that for a long time was this notion that there's something called the Adam Smith problem. Right. Which is that he wrote these two books that are so fundamentally different from each other and completely opposed to each other in every possible way that it was as if they were written by two different people. I uh, am in good company here because Vernon Smith agrees with me. There's not this is not those books go together. Those books uh, complete each other um, in in really important and really significant ways. and I think that the the illusion of the Adam Smith problem probably resulted from people reading one or the other. I think we're seeing less of that uh, insistence now because more and more people are are reading both. Um, and it's interesting because um, since I've been doing more work on on uh, Smith over the years, one of the things that fascinates me is that. Um, economists generally say that their favorite Smith book is Theory of Moral Sentiments, and non-economists prefer Wealth of Nations. And I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but I know that, that uh, you know, my late husband, Steve, and I had had, had this debate, right? He, and I love Theory of Moral Sentiments, let me be clear. But I think part of it was I didn't expect to love Wealth of Nations, and I read it, and I thought it was spectacular. Um, and so it it really is my favorite. And he really likes, liked uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments for, I think, for the ways in which it surprised him. That's um, true. And 
Uh, I mean, if everybody should read more Smith uh, and go on Smith Works <laughs> and read other people talking about reading Smith and uh, and everything that goes on there because it's a, a wonderful website. I think the people that need to read Smith more the most is people who um, either think of him as infallible, like he's never made a mistake, he's never said anything that doesn't go with their own worldview, um, and also the people that think all he's about is greed and profit at any cost, and that's all he cares about, and that's all he writes about. If one of those two interpretations, in my opinion, is how you see Smith, uh, you should probably read more Smith um, and not cherry pick, because we're talking so much about cherry picking and seeing authors as one thing or another and not really giving them that benefit of the doubt. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I Before we go to break, we have to go to break soon, but I really wanted to talk about, uh, before we wrap up this section of our conversation, about um, the books out there that are uh, a little bit more interesting for classical, classical liberals, perhaps on business, um, talking about it in a positive sense, or, um, you know, just books that I think that because we're always pushing, we're always talking about these books that don't really talk about business. Let's say we're, when we talk about uh, Dickens, we're talking about Christmas Carol and there's this really mean guy who has to like go through this whole process because he's a businessman before he actually has a heart and, and all of this. And are there some examples that you can talk about with us uh, of books that maybe we can read um, that don't do that necessarily? Um, I can't, it's going to take the rest of the time. If I mean, <laughs> again, this is, you it. just gave, you gave me a soapbox <laughs> and you said, Sarah, please climb up on this one. So I already mentioned uh, Neville Shute, uh, A Town Like Alice, uh, which is spectacular. Um, I also want to mention um, uh, Edna Ferber's great short stories, the Emma McChaney stories. Um, which are about they're they're from nine the early nineteen teens uh, pre World War One uh, and uh, Emma McChaney is a traveling saleswoman who sells uh, ladies undergarments um, and uh, is ferociously entrepreneurial uh, highly competitive and a role model for for uh, I think uh, contemporary business people of all kinds, but particularly for contemporary working women. Um, in line with that, there's a press I particularly like called Persephone Books. Uh, and they are, they were in Bloomsbury and they've just relocated to Bath, um, England. <clears throat> they publish mostly uh, women's books from between World War I and World War II. Um, many of which are written by and for this generation of women who were suddenly for good and sad reasons as well offered the opportunity or you know forced into the into the position of needing to uh make a living for themselves so one of the books i really like is called high wages and it is by dorothy whipple and it is a classic shop girl novel where this young woman begins as a shop assistant you know, sleeping above the shop and being being abused and put upon by her employers. And by the end of the novel, she owns her own uh, shop and is designing her own fashions and doing quite well, having lived, love, loved and suffered along the way. Great novel. Um, but there's I mean, there's there's just there's so much. Um, I'm, I'm looking. I see. I feel like I, I want your. This is where I it's it, I would it'd be really helpful if your uh, listeners could see me point to my bookcase, <laughs> which is full of books on all of these topics right across uh, the uh, the hall from me. I mean, Sinclair Lewis's work is incredibly important in this context. He's got a there's a great collection of his short stories that he wrote for the Saturday, I think, for the Saturday Evening Post called If I Were Boss, which is just a collection of books set in the business world. Um, I'm a big fan of Studs Terkel, uh, Studs Terkel's book, uh, Working, um, which I don't think was necessarily written in order to glorify the working world, but it sort of ends up doing it by accident. It's a collection of interviews with working people in, uh, in Chicago. And what's fascinating about it is the meaning and importance that people take from work that they are doing that a lot of us, a lot of people would dismiss as being menial, 
unpleasant or boring. So there's a great interview with a grocery store checkout clerk um, talking about the enormous pride that she takes in knowing what everything costs. She's like, I don't have, the new kids have to look up prices. I know what everything costs and she can just, so she can check people out faster and give them a better experience. And she's proud of that. And another great interview with a grave digger who says, you know, you'd think that anybody could dig a grave, but you know, you, you got, you have to do this with care and you have to do this with meaning and you have to do this with respect. Right. And so you think about these jobs, which, you know, a lot of us would be inclined to say anything, but that, right. Mm -hmm. Anything, but digging graves. Right. And uh, when you read the the Turkle book, you, you think a lot harder about making that kind of of claim. That is really interesting. I, I, we will have a list of those um, for our listeners. Um, that they can click on after they hear this. And among your many other accomplishments, in addition to them, you are also a poet, Sarah. So I'd love to hear from you about any poetry you think uh, we should be reading. Wow. Um, yeah, it has been a while um, since uh, since I have regularly written uh, and and published poetry. And that's, there's a variety of personal reasons for that. Um, I'm I'm hoping that 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 part of my brain will will return to functioning uh, one of these one of these years because it is uh, it is something that's very dear to me. Um, what poetry do I think that people should be reading? I think one of the interesting things about poetry is that the experience of reading poetry is in a lot of ways, the experience of feeling freedom. Um, Emily Dickinson famously said in one of her letters, I don't know how to tell you, I, I don't know how to define poetry, but when I read something and I feel like the top of my head has been taken off, then I know it's poetry, right? And there's something about that way that poetry makes you feel like a room without a roof, right? Thank you, Farrell. Um, for that, for that uh, lovely bit of poetry himself, right? But mm-hmm. there's something about the way that poetry works in your brain that it subverts your expectations of where language is going, that it opens up possibilities, that it is playful about meaning and playful about language in a way that produces larger meaning rather than in a way that. Um, sort of nails meaning down onto the page. Now I'm really sounding like a poet, but I I like to think that this is semi-clear. My best example that I give students of this is a very short poem uh, by Margaret Atwood called You Fit Into Me. It is 16 words long, so I'm going to quote the whole thing. You fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye right? Boom. The entire image that you thought you had of the poem that you were listening to is exploded by the time you get to the end of the poem, right? And there's something about that subversion of expectations. There's something about that suddenly meaning has changed, suddenly definition has shifted that to me feels like an experience of freedom and to me feels like an experience of liberty. So we should really be reading more poetry. I I fail at that. <laughs> I I always try to read more poetry, but now that I have a, a direction to go in, I think I'll do more of it. Um. Yeah, I mean, everybody <laughs> should go read Neruda's. There are a few things I want to tell you. Um, oh yes. Uh, which uh, which anybody who reads Spanish should certainly read in Spanish rather than in translation. Um, I I have to I have to get it filtered through translation, which is unfortunate, but it is it is a stunning, stunning piece. And it happens to be a really good example of a work that I think speaks incredibly well and incredibly powerful, powerfully to issues that people who love liberty and people who are uh, invested in classical liberalism really, really care about. And it was written by someone we think of as being on the other side, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, we can't say often enough, I can't say often enough that, um, sometimes the people who you think are on the other side aren't, um, makes sense to me. (laughs) I think that's a great place to stop for our break and we'll be right back with more. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) 
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Daniel Beer, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I now want to turn to our question uh, a little bit more. Can literature influence liberalism? And let's start off by discussing why you think literature shouldn't really be teaching us just one thing. You touched on it earlier, but I'd like to get more into it if that's okay. Um, I think, I, I don't think, I think that literature that teaches one thing produces not very good literature and also probably not particularly good thinking. Um, in general, I am in favor of education that is based around uh, encouraging questions, encouraging complexities of thought, encouraging discussion and debate and the consideration of lots of different sides of issues rather than uh, education or literature of any kind that is I think of as being sort of message driven, which is to say there is a thing that the author of the work or that the teacher of the class wants you to get as a takeaway. And if you get that thing, you're good to go. Um, I frankly don't find that approach to either literature or to teaching to be particularly interesting. Um, and I don't think it necessarily produces particularly interesting people. Um, now, it, I, do I have a preference for interesting people over uh, people who are willing to sort of march in a parade for liberty? I probably do. Um, uh, other people may have different preferences, um, but I'm 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 a fan of I'm a fan of the arguments. I'm a fan of the the debates and of the discussion. Um, so I want, I want us to have literature that does that and that produces that. Uh, so on that, one thing I absolutely love about your writing and speeches on the importance of literature to liberalism is this overarching theme that you have of it helping us gain the ability to relate to others. And we started talking about that when we were speaking about Shakespeare and what he wrote uh, in that Thomas More play about immigration. And he's just encouraging people to relate. Um, Adam Smith, of course, very famously uh, talks a lot about relating to others. Uh, I'd love to hear you elaborate on that um, and and this, on this overarching theme and why it's important and how it guides us from liberalism to from literature to liberalism. Yeah, um, Smith is actually great on this, right? Smith talks about the way in which uh, literature is one of the places where we practice the ability to sympathize with the um, the emotions of that other people experience and with the occurrences in other people's lives, right? It gives us a chance to think about grief and what it might be like uh, before we experience it. It gives us a chance to think about love, right? And to think about relationships and what that might be like uh, before, we, uh, before we experience that, right? Um, it gives us a chance to step into the shoes of someone who lives a very different life from our own and to think about why they make the choices that, that we do. Right? On the break, we were talking briefly about Francis Bufford's great book, Red Plenty, um, which I adore because while Spufford is no fan of the Soviet Union, what his book does is provide readers with, I think, an unprecedented understanding of the idealism and the hopefulness that marked kind of the very earliest days of the Soviet experiment when people really believed that you could solve poverty and want if you could get the equations right because we had this new amazing ability to, uh, to compute faster and better and more accurately because we had computers that could do this for us. And surely 
that kind of computational power was going to solve poverty and was going to solve want. Um, and you can read this as a 21st century uh, liberal, 21st century classical liberal, you can read this knowing that this is a project that is absolutely doomed from the start. But what Spofford does is let you have the knowledge that it is absolutely doomed from the start and also let you imaginatively enter the world of people who really thought it could work. And he does it, I think, far more effectively um, than, than anyone else uh, I have ever read on the topic, right? Because it's very hard to get past the 21st century knowledge that this is going to end with uh, piles of bodies, right? And he's he's so good at it. And it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing work. And um, that makes me uh, really appreciate what you said earlier more about the fact that literature isn't just one thing. Literature isn't just the old classics, like the Penguin classic literature. It's so much more than that. Um, and you mentioned Pharrell earlier, but, you know, rap music is... Uh, so emotive. It's something that people can relate to um, that talks about a lot of people's lives as they're seeing it and the experiences that they have that others may not understand. Um, and, you know, rap music is winning Pulitzers now. Uh, I think that's pretty special. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not now, I, I'm not hugely conversant with, with rap music, but one of the things that I find interesting about it is that it is unapologetically interested in wealth. Um, at the same time that it is unapologetically interested in some very complicated uh, political topics like uh, police violence, for example. Um, and, and I find that that combination really intriguing. And I think that it is that rap music is a place where voices that have been for a very long time, uh, very marginalized, very silenced um, in what we think of as you know, great literature are able to be heard um, and able to be heard by millions of people. Um, and, you know, because they use the power of verse as well, um, it sticks with you, right? And, it, and you can carry it with you in your memory in a way that is harder to do with, you know, prose or with a... Uh, for many people, harder to do than with, a, you know, an economic study or a, or a political argument. Um, it's true. And I know people who can carry economic studies in their head, but I am not one of them. So <laughs> <laughs> me neither. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I think, it, I think it's something that uh, people who are interested in, in Liberty um, need to consider that it is broader than that. Even rap music it talks about hierarchy and politics in a way uh, and really just the need for more freedom, right? So there's a lot mm -hmm. of that in, in, in something as non-traditional as rap lyrics. Um, so it's really important to, to find those things in places where you might not think of. Um, another thing that you've said is that literature can teach us about listening to people we disagree with. Um, and that's been sort of an overarching theme of everything we've been saying, but I, I really want to pinpoint that and really drill into it a little bit. Um, I'd love to hear more from you on that. Well, the, the Spufford book is a really good example of, of that. I mean, that, that conversation that we just have, or at least the, the rant that I went on about Spufford's, <laughs> Spufford's book is a pretty good example of that. But, um, you know, you, you can see it, uh, you can see it everywhere. Um, we have all, uh, read, uh, a novel or a play or experienced a film where the villain is atrociously horrible and yet we're a little persuaded by some of the arguments <laughs> right just as you know man's got a little bit of a point right think about right think about thanos right and the avengers right and the number of after that so you know spoiler alert for for people who are not up to date, I think on that's over now. You know, it's been. I feel too like long I'm just enough. a walking spoiler warning. <laughs> okay. I should, should just you should have watched it by now, guys. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so Thanos's plan is that he's gonna like get the Infinity Stones and the Magic Gauntlet. He's gonna snap his fingers, and half of all life on the planet is gonna be wiped out. And this, much like uh, the Soviets and increased computing power, this is going to be the thing that like solves poverty and solves want and ends human suffering, right? Because the big problem is this, it's a resource problem, right? Um, and the fascinating thing for me about that was how rapidly 
after that movie came out. I saw memes popping up all over the place. Thanos was right. You know, right. And sometimes it was just people who were having a very, very bad day at the office. Right. And some but sometimes it was people who were arguing that, you know, there's just too damn many people on the planet. Right. And it is a resource problem. And what we need is to cut that down. And then all of a sudden you're you're deep into a, a debate about, uh, you know, you're into the, the 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 Julian Simon stuff. Right. And the, and the wagers and are, are humans the ultimate resource kind of stuff. Um but it was very interesting to me that you could take sort of the the biggest, baddest, most destructive villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and people would agree with him, right? And some of that is because, you know, humans can be awful. But some of that <laughs> is also because this is what good literature this is what exciting movie making this is what good compelling narrative does right it persuades you right it allows you to think about that right and thanos was well written and thanos was pretty darn convincing right and if you hadn't spent a lot of time uh, thinking about julian simon you might be thinking yeah, okay um <laughs> Right. And so that's a, a reason that literature is great because it lets us do that. And that's a reason that literature is dangerous because it lets us do that. Right. I mean, it's like any other tool. Right. You can, you know, you can hammer in a nail with a hammer or you can bash somebody over the head with it. Right. right. It's not the hammer's fault. It's true. Um, Went from uh, Thanos to Malthus real quick there. Yeah. <laughs> After that movie came out. <laughs> Uh, that also brings me to sort of the importance of literature as satire or a weapon against tyranny. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that and how that's been used uh, in the past or how it ought to be used more as uh, as something liberty-minded folk would be interested in? So I, like anyone else who spent a lot of time in an English department, I am a huge fan of satire. We We love it. It's fun to decode. It's fun to play with. We feel very clever. We know what to do with it. It's a great, great tool for saying one thing and not saying it at the same time and being funny about something and being dead serious uh, about it um, simultaneously. Um, so it's it's an incredibly, um, incredibly powerful kind of rhetoric. It's very difficult to do well. Um, everybody thinks that they can be Jonathan Swift. Everybody thinks that they can be Frederick Bastiat because Swift and Bastiat do satire so well that it looks really easy, but it's not easy. Um, and the number of times that one reads something now and thinks, I, I can't tell if this is satire or not, right? I can't, this is like, is this just a really bad argument or is this meant to be funny or what's happening here? Is, is kind of evidence of, of how difficult it is to do satire correctly, but well-wielded, right? Well done. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and, it's, uh, it, and it's fun to read, right? And it's fun to, fun to think about. So it's very attractive um, to people. And if, if one of the things that classical liberals want to do is to gain an audience, right, of people who might not necessarily be predisposed to the ideas, satire is a great way to talk to people who disagree with you, right, because they don't know they disagree with you until they're halfway through the piece, and by then they might have stopped disagreeing with you already, right? Bastiat's particularly good at this. Um, That's for sure. Um, okay, I want to move into something that I'm super excited to talk about. I want to talk to you about your piece in Reason Magazine that argues that libertarians should read more romance novels. <laughs> I'm going to take some time to talk about this because I got really excited. This makes me really happy. So I want to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> Can you please talk? To it was the best expense report I ever submitted. Oh, yeah. Was the list of titles from that I had to purchase in order to write this piece. Oh, I love uh, it. I love silk it. is good seduction and so on. Uh, I love your life. <laughs> Uh, can you please talk a bit about that and perhaps point us to some examples? I just want to hear you talk about this. What a great article. I really encourage everybody to <laughs> yeah. check it out. I loved it. Um, I will be sharing it on my social media. I love it that much. So <laughs> please Thanks. talk a little I, bit about I that. Had, I think it's clear I had a lot of fun <laughs> writing the piece. But I also do take it seriously. Yes. There's 
one of the reasons I take it seriously is because to circle way back to something we were talking about earlier, when people complain that literature is anti-market, and I say, you've got to read more stuff. I don't all, just mean you have to read more deeply mm-hmm. in the big authors who you think are important. I mean that if you want literature that you know propounds what Deirdre McCluskey calls the bourgeois virtues, you need to read stuff written for the bourgeois, right? You need to read stuff written for people to read on the subway on their way to work, right? Or read on their lunch breaks, right? And that means reading murder mysteries and that means reading uh, Jack Reacher novels and that means reading uh, romance novels and science fiction and Westerns and all of the stuff that the the, the bookstores uh, put in their genre fiction section and try to pretend don't exist, but actually sell more than anything else. Um, so, so that's part of part of that project is just to continue to assert that there is real that there are real um serious topics that are up for discussion um in in genre fiction of all kinds um i think romance fiction is particularly interested in um it's been a hot minute since i wrote the article in a uh, trust and in the creation of trust which is something again that that mccluskey points to as being incredibly important uh, in uh, the bourgeois virtues and in the creation and uh, maintaining of a market, right? You have to be able to trust one another in exchanges. Uh, You could argue, and I do, that the action of a romance novel is nearly always about the romantic partners learning to trust one another fully. I was just watching uh, The Scarlet Pimpernel the other night, which is one of the the great grandmas of all romantic fiction, right? And uh, I I love the movie. I've been in love with the Scarlet Pimpernel since I was like 12. Um, And it's a great, uh, great romantic story. And, you know, our romantic hero has a secret identity, right? He presents himself as this sort of frivolous, fashionable fop and he's really the heroic scarlet pimpernel saving aristocrats from the guillotine in the french revolution um and he marries uh, an actress and is misled to believe that she has caused the death of other people and the whole action of the novel in addition to all of the you know sword fighting and adventure and and you know secret identity stuff the romantic action of the novel is her learning who he really is and him learning who she really is and learning that they can rely on one another and learning that they can trust one another, right? And that's a great lesson for a market economy and it's a great a lesson for personal relationships as well. So there's that. Um, romance novels are also super, super interested in work uh, and in the value of work, particularly this is the case, I think, in uh, historical romance novels. Um, Contemporary romance novels, by which I mean set in the, the, the 20th, 21st century, often there's work that goes on, but because in the 21st century, the assumption is that everybody works, um, the amount of sort of romantic conflict you can have over work is somewhat limited. You get the kind of classic shop around the corner stuff, or sorry, in modern incarnation, it's uh, you've got mail. Right. Where you have the the small independent bookshop owner and the the big corporate guy comes in and and they fall in love and he has to learn that, you know, the mom and pop bookshop is the way to go or however they work it out. Um, But in historical romance novels, by which I mean uh, romance novels set in the Middle Ages, the Regency, uh, Victorian era, um, working at all for men or women um, is a contested subject. Right. And so you get, say, a young heroine who has been forced to work to support herself and she falls in love with an aristocrat who wants to take her away from all this. And she says, you can't, I, this is I love what I do. I don't want I don't want to stop working when I get married. I realize it's lower class and I realize it doesn't you know, align with your your aristocratic understanding of how the world works. But I this has meaning to me and gives meaning to my life. Right. Or you have the aristocratic hero who's like secretly running a, you know, I don't know, a railroad or a factory or something on the side. And he's like ashamed of it. And this is a big secret. And, you know, they have to they have to sort of tangle with that. And we'll be 
you know, will the aristocratic young lady of his dreams understand that that work is part of what what he does? Will she lower herself to to be with someone who engages in trade? Right. Um, and it's it I think it's quite wonderful because it it really um, it puts what I think of as a, a very important understanding of what our work means to us as individuals and means to us as our part of our self-understanding um, at the center of personal relationships, right? And I, I, I find that fascinating, right? And I think that, you know, I think that if you're a fan of free markets, which I am, uh, you have to have a lot of respect for the hard work that makes free markets run. Right. You, you know, you've got to have respect for people who show up at the office every day or people who show up at the factory every day or people, who, you know. Um, and I think these romance novels very often do a beautiful job of that. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, sexual freedom as well. And we don't necessarily need to get into the details of that. But that is off, also often um, a, an important aspect of these novels, a focus on increasing focus in novels written say from the 90s late 90s forward an increasing focus on consent romance novels used to be a lot rapier in the 80s um, definitely <laughs> this is this sort of this big trope of you know she she resists and she resists and then she is forced and then she realizes oh gosh i really like it and please carry me off with you right that doesn't play so well <laughs> in 2022, right? Um, and so romance novels have increasingly focused on uh, consent and on ways of making consent sexy and of way of making ways of making consent a thing that brings people closer together and uh, can still produce sort of lovely frissons of sexual tension um, and eroticism, but that don't require someone to violate the person and the rights of, of their partner. Um, and I think that's an incredibly good example, right? Particularly in a world that, that to me at least, seems to be uh, increasingly um, uh, sex negative um, and and puritanical in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think those those positive examples of of healthy relationships in terms of of trust and a healthy relationship with work and healthy sexual relationships are actually really really important. And I think they're the kinds of things that classical liberals ought to be absolutely on board with. Plus, some romance novels have really good economics in them. But yes. <laughs> that's that's another topic for another time. Um, I could do a whole episode <laughs> on this if you want to come back. <laughs> Any, anytime. Um, um, and I have another guest for you on that. We'll get Adam Simon awesome. on here as well. And he Love and I can it. talk Georgette Hayer for an hour. <laughs> so people are a little hard on contemporary romance, especially because they follow this trope of like the big bad business and like the beautiful mom and shop, yeah. pop shop and all that. But there is, as you're saying, like this other side of it where there is that consent and and a lot more equality. For, like, I mean, romance novels have always been written primarily by women. Uh, and I'm not an expert on that, um, on like the intent of these women or anything like that. But to me, it seems that's why the focus is on um, equality and rights of women in a lot of these romance books like it she's the star she wants a career she wants to have this equality and it's hard for her um and then she gets it in the contemporary romance world uh she has those uh rights and she wants to keep them and she doesn't want them yeah. taken away from her that's a, a lot i think that's a, a really important part uh and you talked about the ideas of consent and and but there's also this other thing about contemporary romance it's about having these different love affairs i mean one of the biggest contemporary romance novels out there right now is red white and royal blue <laughs> <laughs> great book. which i have not read but i've seen advertisements i really for liked it, it. So tell me all about it um, but like it features a romance between the prince of england and the son of the president of the united states yes <laughs> so it's it's like it's it's allowing for this freedom um that liberty lovers should be very excited about um that they're going there they're having these kinds of discussions and they're normalizing um you know the liberty of love and uh that's really exciting and and you know following up on, on different kinds of family structures and different kinds of romantic partners, which is uh, really great. And that's something that libertarians should get excited about, in my opinion. Right. Um, and, and I think that we tend to think about, or people who don't read romance tend to think about it as a conservative genre, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've got this happy ending, yes. right? Everything is sort of tied up neatly with this nice little bow. Um, and I think one of the first romance writers I started to read was Suzanne Brockman, who writes these novels about, you know, I don't know, 
they're like special forces or Navy SEALs, something. They do something with security and bodyguarding <laughs> or, or whatever, right? Yes. And, and uh, right, so it's even another fighting terrorism and falling in love. You know, it's great, right? Um, and everybody should read them because they're they're a delight. But uh, it would be very easy for those to be sort of very, very uh, politically conservative novels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Brockman, interestingly, has, you know, has openly gay characters, has an entire novel about uh, about a, a same sex relationship um, that is accepted by these incredibly uh, tough guys who are out mm. saving the world for freedom. Yeah, right? um, there you go. <laughs> and and her stuff was fairly early for that. Right. And and I think that that's um, I think that's the kind of you know, I think that's the kind of cultural representation we should get behind. Definitely. And there's a lot about uh, feminism that we could talk about, about uh, the equality of women. That's always there. Yeah. We'll be talking about it a little bit. And um, you said in one interview that a woman who is free to be herself in her working life is free to be herself in her romantic life. And no happy ending is possible without that. And I think that's a really good way to wrap up that conversation on, on romance novels, because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Um, My last question before we uh, enter into our formal wrap-up, you said elsewhere that libertarians should reclaim the power of art. Um, I'm wondering if that means we should be focusing on producing more writing and novels more generally. Um, Should we be doing more of that? Uh, Should we focus on that more? What do you think? I think that people who make art and love liberty should put that in their art. I think that people who do economics and love liberty should put that in their economics. I think that people who, uh, you know, love history and love liberty should put that in their work on history. I mean, I don't, I think in other words, it is a mistake for someone to think, I love classical liberty. I've never written anything before, but I think I'm going to go write you know, the great classical liberal <laughs> novel. That might not be yeah. the way to do it, right? Comparative advantage is a thing. <laughs> um, but um, I think what we can do, obviously people who can make art should make art. Everybody should make art if they can. It's good stuff to make. It makes the world better and it doesn't hurt anybody and you might as well do it. Um, but if you're not a person who is driven to make art, you can look for good art you can promote good art you can talk about good art and by art I'm I mean writ large right I mean all of the kinds of stuff we've been talking about I mean television I mean you know all sorts of stuff right you can you can look for examples of uh art of of uh literature of theater of all of the music of all of these things that addresses topics that are important to you and you can elevate them in your own work that is you doing what you do best right do i think that everybody who loves liberty should like jump off of the train of doing political work or doing economics or or producing podcasts for the institute for liberal studies um and like institute for liberal studies should stop doing what you guys do and you should all take up painting mm-hmm. no bad idea you don't want to see me paint (laughs) I I mean yeah nobody wants to see me paint either right I can't I can't draw a straight line right so so no but you should do what you love if that's art do that right um and if you don't love to make art there's all kinds of ways to talk about it and use it and think about it um and promote it um and bring it to other people's attention I think we've gotten a lot better about that over the last 20 years or so. That's great. Um, By the way. I'm very sad to say that we've run out of time. I would love to keep going. Uh, But we have talked about a lot. And let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, Sarah, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how literature can influence liberalism? Now, didn't I just say at some point in this conversation that I'm not a big fan of the kind of teaching or the kind of art where people are like, here are your main takeaways. <laughs> I, believe, I believe that's like direct quote from something I said just a little bit earlier. It is. Uh, <laughs> here's what I hope. 
Um, I hope that people will return to whatever they are reading for love um, and think and and think about it maybe a little bit as an object of study and think about it a little bit harder in terms of what is it what does it have to say to some of the questions that are most important to us about liberty um, and about and about freedom and about uh, individualism. Um, I hope that people uh, will have gotten a bit of a reading list, maybe. Um, I hope that uh, people will think about whether Thanos was right or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope that everybody will pick up a romance novel at some point and, and just see what they think. Um, yeah, let's go with that. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Everybody, Sarah Squire, thank you so much for being with us. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. It is a delight to be talking to ILS again. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Sikang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vopenford. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.